Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 30 of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In Podcast. Yeah, 30 episodes? Man. Uh, has anybody listened to all of them? Did you ever, did you, I mean, I do this myself when I discover a podcast and it's a topic that I find interesting. Um, I usually find that they've already done dozens of episodes before I found the podcast. And so then maybe I'm tempted to go back and download all of the old episodes uh, and, and listen to them all from the beginning, which is kind of strange sometimes with certain podcasts because I'll be listening to stuff that you know, they were actually talking about like a year ago or two years ago. And uh, eventually I'll, I'll catch up to the present day. A bit of a pain if, if podcasts run kind of long. And now my podcasts, I generally, I guess I go about... Uh, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes. And so, you know, that's a big commitment. If you listen to all 30 of them, thank you. <laughs> you must have, you must ride your bike a lot or drive around or ride the bus or do yard work or something that allows you that much free time to just listen to podcasts. So, well, thanks for your consideration. Anyway, I'm on number 30. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about my my memories of working as a movie stand-in, and uh, I've been generally keeping the stories in chronological order of you know the, the, the different shows I worked on, and, and uh, primarily the Promised Land uh, series that I worked on for all three seasons. And so at this point in the story chronology, I'm up to almost the very end of the first season of Promised Land. Now, we left St. George, Utah, after we had filmed three episodes down there, and we, we came back to Salt Lake City to do... We only had three more episodes left for, to, uh, you know, complete the season. And uh, the way it worked out, actually, there was one standalone episode, and then there was a two-part episode. So, uh, so that's, that's what was left for the season so okay so it's uh it was around april but very end of march beginning of april when we came back from uh from saint george and started working on an episode called civil wars this was episode 121 that being the 21st episode of the first season of promised land and um, for this particular episode we had a director that had not directed an episode of promised land before although he had worked on many, many episodes of Promised Land. So what am I talking about? Our assistant director, well, you know, we had two assistant directors uh, when it came to, well, boy, maybe I should, uh, maybe I should try to describe the entire production department. You have um, the unit production manager. And this is kind of a desk job sort of thing. He comes out to set often but for the most part, he needs to be back at the office taking phone calls and making phone calls and uh, worrying about budgets and staying within the budget and talking to the network and, and a few things like this. The production manager concerned with schedules and budgets. Um, and so his right-hand man then on the set is the first assistant director. 
And uh, so the director of the episode is really not concerned so much with budgets and schedules. Certainly he wants to stay within budget and stay within the schedule, but it's not his primary responsibility to to worry about those things. It's the first assistant director who's the one who always has to be sort of the cheerleader on set and sometimes the taskmaster to say, "Okay, come on, we got to get this uh, we got to get this shot off before before lunch to stay on schedule or you know, things like that. So that's the first assistant director, and they alternate every other episode. Uh, you have a different guy being first assistant director. So we had two guys working as first assistant director, and they would work every other episode. So one of them, his name's Larry, and uh, Larry, I don't know if he had actually directed... Uh, a lot of stuff before working on Promised Land as, a, as an assistant director. He'd been an assistant director for many years, but um, he had lobbied to direct an episode of Promised Land and be the director. And so he got his shot at this uh, on the 21st episode of the first season called Civil War. So Larry, who normally was our first assistant director on every other episode, was now the director of the episode. And so um, Larry had, had done like all the other directors. He had spent time uh, going over the script and maybe even making some casting decisions for some of the parts that were cast locally. And also Larry um, had, had chosen some locations that we were going to use um, to work on the episode. And so one of the locations in particular was this uh, kind of mountain road to the east of Salt Lake City. There's, um, if you're going from Salt Lake City up to Park City, along the way there's something called East Canyon. It's about halfway up, and then uh, East Canyon has its own road, and there's a reservoir up there, and there's campgrounds and places where you can go hiking and a lot of uh, stuff up there in East Canyon. But the road that goes up through East Canyon and eventually goes uh, comes out uh, near a small town called uh, Hennifer or another small town called uh, Morgan. This road is only maintained during um, basically the summer months. So um, the road is officially closed during all the winter months and they don't bother plowing or doing any of that stuff uh, until, you know, like Memorial Day is what, or maybe May 1st, I don't know, but there's some time in the spring when they officially open the East Canyon Road, and we were up there in early April, so this was before the official reopening for the year of the East Canyon Road, so it made it a perfect spot for us to film this particular episode, because in the episode, you have uh, a car accident, and so you got a smashed up car, or two, or three vehicles, <laughs> uh, and in the episode, these cars are, are wrecked. They are uh, they're too far away from civilization, you know, to get cell phone service, and uh, so they're just stuck there for a couple of days, you know, waiting to see what is going to happen and what are they going to do to get out of the situation. So we needed to have a place where we could stage a car accident and keep the cars in place for two or three days or however long we were actually going to be on location uh, doing our exterior scenes for the episode. So that's what we had to do, and so Larry 
and uh, you know the rest of the locations department and the people working with him they chose this location on, on the East Canyon Road to do this episode which was you know everything's looking fine and uh, but the only trouble was that right before we went up there to film this particular episode it snowed and you know by then you're not expecting snow we had been in uh, St. George for you know uh, several weeks and it wasn't snowing in St. George or if it did it didn't didn't stick to the ground and by this time beginning of April even in Salt Lake City you know you just don't expect snow because by then you know the grass is starting to turn green and some of the trees are starting to get the buds opening up and it looks like it's springtime but those of you who maybe have spent any time in Utah you know that when this happens when it starts looking like springtime and maybe even you know you get two or three weeks of pretty good weather there's always one last blast of winter (laughs) in April and that's what we ran into so uh, I think Larry had in his mind how this episode was going to turn out and how everything was going to look and chose the location and everything was looking fine and then boom we get this blast of winter weather which threw a bit of a wrench into the episode because now some of the other stuff we had already filmed for the episode that didn't have any snow in it um you know is it going to match the stuff that we're going to have to film up in the canyon with snow as it turned out they were able to make it uh, appear uh, like this this car crash location was far enough away from everything that you could justify that it's kind of in the mountains and yeah maybe there'd be snow there even though there's not snow anywhere else and so that's kind of what they ran into uh, filming the episode now um, the whole point of the episode is just um, I don't know you've got a guy who's uh, kind of this businessman who's uh, very dedicated to his work and he's kind of it's turned him into this uh grouchy yuppie kind of a guy and uh, he sort of neglects his wife and his young children and and uh, he gets involved in this car accident and the Green family is also involved in the car accident and so in the end he sort of learns his lesson that he needs to kind of settle down and, and focus on what's really important in life and um, so and then the other sort of subplot of this episode is that uh, Andrew, the angel of death from Touched by an Angel, shows up and Dinah Green re- recognizes that that's the angel of death and she's very freaked out about being around him. She thinks somebody's going to die. She thinks someone in her family is in danger. And uh, it turns out that Andrew just has a message from God for Dinah Green and he's not there to take anybody away nobody's going to die but every now and then even an angel of death just shows up to give you a a loving message from a kind father in heaven who just wants to tell you that he is very pleased with what you're doing as as uh, as a child of God so that was that was sort of the point of having Andrew in the episode but it did sort of raise the profile a little bit for us to think that well here we've got an episode with uh Andrew, the Angel of Death from Touched by an Angel, which is a more popular show, so it's always good to have a little bit of a, a crossover there. And um, I don't think he minded too much working with us, but though it, it, it was, again, one of those situations where um, being 
working on his his regular gig, Touched by an Angel, and then having to go and and uh, juggle the schedule so he could come work on our show. I think that was a little bit uh, distressing to the actor John Die, but uh, you know he's he's a nice guy. We all liked working with uh, John Die, so it was fun. If we're gonna be able to squeeze in a little more Touched by an Angel crossover action. Uh, he was a little bit more available because he generally wasn't involved in Touch by an Angel storylines as much as, of course, Roma Downey or even Della Reese. So it was nice to have him around. We, we enjoyed that. Well, also, on this episode, we got to have um, um, Ossie Davis back again, playing the part of Erasmus Jones. So we, we enjoyed having um, all these people around, and, and uh, Larry enjoyed... Uh, directing the episode of course and uh, he did a great job I, I enjoyed uh, Larry's directing now um, because Larry was the first assistant director on this episode and our other normal first assistant director was busy working on um, uh, pre- pre- preparation work for for the next uh, two part season finale thing we were going to do uh, we needed an assistant director and um you know, normally the, the nice thing to do would be to allow the second assistant director, uh, Anthony Hemingway, to step up and, and you know get a get an upgrade and become uh, um, you know first assistant director. Um, but in this sense, I don't know you know some sort of political uh, problem here, or just the fact that Anthony was so young, or or also just the fact that we it, we so much enjoyed having Anthony. Uh, as our second assistant director that, uh, you know, nobody wanted to disrupt the flow there and uh, we wanted to keep him doing his job as second assistant director because he was so good at it. I don't know. These are not my decisions. But so we, we didn't let Anthony, we, as I say again, wasn't my decision. Anthony was not first assistant director on this episode. Uh, so they brought in a guy that I think uh, Mary, maybe Larry knew this guy from who'd been working down in Los Angeles and his name is Jerry Fleck and so Jerry was our first assistant director on this particular episode of Promised Land and we had never worked with him before on the Promised Land show but uh, Jerry Fleck um, I came to find out later actually had, had a pretty good reputation in Hollywood everybody liked him and he had spent uh, most of his time uh, for a while working on um, Star Trek uh, television shows. So, uh, Star Trek Voyager in particular. Um, and uh, I think maybe after after that series went off the air, he may have worked on the... Uh, uh, I don't know if he worked on uh, the Enterprise show. But anyway, he, he, he had a long-term gig working on Star Trek uh, shows. And I, I think he was uh, the first assistant director on on one of the Star Trek feature films uh, directed by... Uh, maybe, maybe it was First Contact. I think it was Star Trek First Contact, directed by Jonathan Frakes. So I think Jerry Fleck had done that. So it was fun to work with Jerry Fleck, uh, and I, I do enjoy Star Trek. I wouldn't say I'm a you know, really hardcore Star Trek fan. I've never dressed up as a Star Trek character. <laughs> Or, or gone to a convention, but I enjoy watching uh, the movies and the TV show for the most part. So, uh, so it was fun to have Jerry there. Although I felt a little bit like, oh, I want to ask him a bunch of questions about Star Trek, but suddenly I, it's like my mind went blank and I couldn't think of what to ask him about. So I don't know. I did mention to Jerry that 
one thing that you know having worked as a stand-in and and as an extra on different shows i thought maybe my dream job would be to work as an extra in a star trek episode that had uh, borg characters i'd love to be one of the borg characters as an extra and have them do the whole you know wardrobe and makeup and put the funny prosthetics on my face and give me like a laser for an eyeball and stuff like that that'd be great uh so that's still i suppose a possibility uh dream come true for me if anyone has any uh clout with the paramount (laughs) uh, i'm really good at what i do i'm a a good stand-in and i'm an excellent extra and and I would love it if I could have a chance to play the part of a Borg uh, in, in, a, in a Star Trek uh, production, even if it's just as an extra. Just because I thought, you know, maybe I'd steal the outfit, right? <laughs> maybe I shouldn't announce that. Now they'll never hire me. No, because that was one of the things. When you work as an extra and they, and they give you wardrobe but from the wardrobe department, then they take your pay voucher and they keep that until you turn the wardrobe back in and then you can get your pay voucher signed and then you'll get your check in the mail. I figured, well, forget it. You know, you can keep my pay voucher. I'm, I'm just going to sneak home wearing the Borg costume. <laughs> and I, I, I guess maybe, you know, that's not news because I think that's what I told Jerry as well when I got a chance to talk to Jerry. I said, yeah, I, that's what I would do. I work as a Borg and then I just walk off with the costume let him keep my pay voucher. Uh, and we just we you know we joked about that of course and Jerry mentioned that uh, that some of the guys who did work as Borg extras on the Star Trek First Contact movie actually got paid quite well for what they did because when you're doing a job like that um, you know you have to show up in advance for wardrobe fittings and makeup tests and you know there's there's an awful lot that goes into it when you're working as an extra in, in that capacity so I'm sure those guys who did that work they got extra pay for coming to wardrobe fittings and things like that. And then a lot of times they do give you extra pay um, for just certain very specific things about the work that you do. So if you have to have a special kind of makeup, if you have to have, you're going to be wet in the scene, you know, they're going to use some kind of swimming scene. They'll give you an extra bonus for the fact that you have to be wet. They'll give you an extra bonus for the fact you might have to have your hair cut a certain way. So so things like that. I, I think that's what Jerry was referring to, that some of the guys who worked as extras in Star Trek First Contact got paid pretty well uh, because of all the extra bonuses for work, for being a Borg. So, so that was cool. Uh, you know, the, the fact that you normally wouldn't, wouldn't even get to know a guy like Jerry Fleck working on a TV series in Utah... Uh, so that was fun to get to know him, even though it was just for that one episode. And so from then on, whenever I saw his name in the credits of, of, of a Star Trek production, I was like, hey, that's Jerry Fleck. I know him. <laughs> or at least, you know, I met him, talked to him, had, had lunch with him a few times, you know. So I can claim that, yeah, I know Jerry Fleck. And so I was kind of sad, and this has been a couple, three years ago. I'm not exactly sure how long ago. Jerry Fleck passed away. Um, I don't know if it was just a sudden illness of some sort, because, you know, he was not very old. Um, but he passed away, and so longtime fans of Star Trek uh, recognized that fact. And so he did get received, you know, some tributes on the Internet, uh, the passing of our, uh, our old friend, Jerry Fleck. So, 
but I can I can attest to the fact that he's a he's a good guy, nice guy, nice to work with, very professional, and uh, I think though that he may have been just a little bit uncomfortable working with us on uh, the Promised Land show. I think it might have been just a little bit out of his comfort zone. If for nothing else, the fact that he was away from from home, you know, and out there just hanging out with us, working on this silly little family drama show. But, uh, yeah, we had more than one occasion to have uh, some sort of connection to Star Trek because one of our directors who directed a lot of episodes of the Promised Land show was named Victor Lobel. And Victor directed a lot of episodes of uh, Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager and, and those, those productions through there. So uh, it was fun to see Victor's name in the opening uh, title sequence or well not in the sequence but anyway during the first few minutes of an episode of uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine or Star Trek Voyager and see Victor Lobel yeah I know him he's my old friend Victor Lobel he worked out he did a lot of Promised Land episodes more than any other single director that we had uh, Victor did a lot of Promised Land he did a lot of Touch My Angel episodes as well it was always nice to work with uh, with Victor Lobel and again, I never sat down and picked his brain about what's it like to work on Star Trek. I think I did find out one thing, though, from, from talking to these guys, because I'm, of course, always interested in how other shows are made, especially if it's a show that I enjoy watching. I want to know, well, how'd they do that one? You know, and, and I have enough questions based on my experience working on Promised Land that I'm, um, my questions might be a little more specific to exactly you know, how the production was done, because I have experience there. Um, and so one thing I found out about Star Trek, uh, generally speaking, they, they only shot seven days per episode. So with Promised Land, Touched by an Angel, Everwood, most of the series I've, I've had ever been involved with, um, to do a one-hour episode, episodic TV drama, uh, take eight days of production on the set. But I found out that it was only seven days on Star Trek. And so part of the reason that was the case was that they uh, they had enough special effects uh, moments in the episode uh, that uh, you know they could shave a day off of filming with the live action actors because the rest of the the rest of the stuff was done by you know the model makers and the digital artists and the guys doing the, the spaceship uh, special effects stuff so that's kind of fun so that's something I learned. <laughs> now, I don't know. Maybe if I went back and watched a Star Trek episode and, and, and timed it out exactly, you know, how much of this episode is done by actors, you know, and then and, and how... Just figure out how many minutes of the episode featured, uh, you know, spaceship shots and see if that's actually one-eighth of, of the episode would be an interesting thing to, to check out. Maybe I'll check that out. All right. So, you know, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast that one of the phenomena that I, I sort of observed, phenomena? Well, I, I don't Sorry if I'm not getting the, the grammar just right there. Um, well, okay, here's my analogy. Um, let's say, uh, just talk about kids, kids playing with toys, or, or especially kids that build a model airplane. You know, so you get the 
you get all the pieces and you start to build the model airplane and you're very careful about putting it together and you want to trim all the excess pieces of plastic off and you're just putting this model together as, as carefully as you can and you paint it and you put the decals on it and you get the idea, right? You're putting a lot of effort into making this as nice as you can make it. And then once it's done, you put it on a stand and, uh, you know, you put it on your on your dresser in your bedroom. Or maybe you you tie some strings to it and you hang it from the ceiling and uh, maybe even make it look like it's in a, a dog fight. So you kind of position it hanging from a string and you've got this model airplane that you built and you're very proud of it. And so it's up there for about a year or so and and one day your friend next door says, hey, I, you know, we we went to Wyoming for the weekend. We bought firecrackers. Let's blow something up. You know, and you're looking for, you know, you're going to put a firecracker in a in an apple and blow the apple up or you know I'm I'm this is I'm not condoning this behavior I'm just saying this is an example of things that happen and maybe finally the last step is you go and you get your uh, your model airplane that you built so carefully last year and you take it out on the back patio and you put firecrackers in it and you blow it up and in your juvenile mind you think to yourself that was fun and you have absolutely no regrets about blowing up your model airplane. The one that you, a year earlier, had spent so much time and effort to put together just so. And then you just blew it up. And so I find this somewhat analogous to our work on the Promised Land show. We were all doing a very professional job, and you know everything was fine, but uh, after a while you'd hear people on the crew kind of saying, you know what they ought to do in an episode? They ought to do this. They ought to do that. And occasionally you'd get almost that same kind of mentality. They should do an episode where, you know, they're driving around so much. They should get in a big accident. Just, you know, just smash up this old Suburban and, you know, roll that Airstream trailer. And they should just get all mashed up. And so it wasn't quite that bad, but we did have an episode where they got in an accident. So this is the one called Civil Wars. And um, (laughs) so it's funny because... they they had uh, obviously you know the crew members can sit around at lunch and, and speculate on having a, an episode with a car crash but somewhere back in Hollywood <laughs> where the writers generally were somebody down there also came up with the idea and so they wrote an episode with a car crash and going to bang up that airstream trailer in the in suburban actually they didn't they didn't bang up the the trailer at all for the episode, but the suburban got in a little accident. What what happened was, uh, in the storyline, uh, they're on this windy little two-lane blacktop road through the canyon, and there's a girl driving a convertible, and she's all happy and you know just just whatever. And then this this businessman, who's this heartless businessman who neglects his family, he's in a hurry and he tries to pass uh, this girl, and and they have a they have a car accident. And her car gets all banged up, and she's in really bad shape. And there's just kind of a hairpin turn, and uh, the the Greens, with Erasmus uh, driving, um, they come around the corner fast and uh, and come upon this accident. And Erasmus slams on the brake, uh, but it's, there's not enough time to stop uh, before the the suburban actually impacts against this car that's already been in an accident so that's how the green family gets involved in the accident so that's 
that's what happened. So, you know, we, we normally had two uh, Chevy Suburbans that we used to make the show. And uh, in this case, they brought in a third one that looked uh, almost identical to the ones we had. And they used that one. They banged up the front end of this third one that they brought in and used that so that they didn't have to, you know, actually bang up the ones we were we were using most of the time because there was of course the idea that okay this is a one-time thing and in the very next episode we're going to fix up the suburban and they'll be back on the road like normal after that but so uh, that's something that happened behind the scenes the other thing that was kind of funny that happened behind the scenes was uh, well the the rich businessman character is driving a a bmw not a brand new bmw but one that wasn't too old and it was in pretty nice shape and so, so here's what they did uh, when they when they did the accident. The accident happens off screen. Uh, you know, the, the 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 Green family they're they're driving their suburban, and they they come upon this accident. So um, since we didn't see the accident on screen, um, they decided to just. Uh, stage it carefully. So one thing that they did was, I, I think they actually got a, um, for the for the convertible that the girl was driving, I think they went out and found one in a junkyard that had already been in a bad accident. And then they found the matching car, same color, same model, that, uh, that was in, that was in perfect condition. So that's, um, that's what they did to, to get that car situation figured out okay so um all then with the bmw well they only had the one bmw so what they did is they uh they they needed to show it driving around without damage for the beginning of the episode then they needed to show it parked near the accident with some damage and so i i wasn't maybe exactly on set when this happened but uh i was i was told how this went down the uh, stunt driver who was hired to uh, to do this was given very specific instructions. So it was okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, to bang up the front end. You know, just smash this uh, this BMW into this uh, into this wrecked car that we already have sitting in the middle of the road. And but it needs to be just enough of a bump that you do some damage to the BMW, but not enough that it couldn't be easily repaired. <laughs> so, so that's what they did. So, um, so the BMW gets, uh, gets some damage, and you see it in the episode, and then it goes away. Uh, the episode is done. So uh, the next, uh, you know, next season, we show up to, to work on season two of uh, Promised Land, and we see this same BMW that was used in our episode, only the damage has been repaired. <laughs> and so what happened was our unit production manager decided he liked this car, so he kind of gave himself a deal. And I don't begrudge him for doing this. I think it's actually pretty good, because I hate it when they take a perfectly good car and just destroy it for... Uh, for a TV show or something, because, you know, I like cars, and I just don't like the idea of them being destroyed. So, so that's what he did. He, he had the, you know, very specific instructions on, uh, you know, 
featuring the car in the episode with some damage, and then he took it off uh, in the in the summer and took it and had it repaired, and then just used it as his personal vehicle all through uh, the next season. So, pretty good trick. And you know, I'm sure he got a really good deal on on the car for himself by doing it that way. So that's kind of fun. All right, I'm I'm home now, so I'm going to go inside. But I'll tell you one more significant memory I have from this episode. Um, it was about the height of uh, visibility for the Hale-Bopp comet uh, back in uh, early 1997. So for part of it, when we were out there um, on our secluded rural highways uh, filming some stuff at night, we did get to... Uh, we were far enough away from uh, the big city that it was very easy to, to see... Uh, you know, celestial objects. And so we all got a pretty good view of the Hale-Bopp comet uh, when we were making that episode. So those of you who maybe remember that, something about the Heaven's Gate uh, group down in uh, California and the mass suicides. That was all happening right about that time when we were making the Civil Wars episode of Promised Land. All right, enough rambling for now. I hope you join me next Thursday night at 8, 7 central for the next episode of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In podcast. Remember, my email address is moviestandin at gmail.com and the official notes for this podcast are available at uh, utahstandin.blogspot.com So, see you next time.